our guest speaker for this evening. So without further ado, let me go ahead and do that. Our guest speaker for this retreat comes all the way up from Virginia, uh, Northern Virginia, I believe. I think they call it Nova. Is that, is, I think that's the hip way that you refer to it. Southern California is called SoCal. You know, New York, we're known as NYC, uh, but he's from Nova. And so uh, coming all the way up from uh, Northern Virginia, uh, he is the senior pastor of Christ Central Presbyterian Church. He's been there for almost about four years as a senior pastor. And prior to that, he was senior pastor of a church out in California uh, known as New Life Presbyterian Church. He is a graduate of UC Berkeley, as well as Westminster Theological Seminary out in California, San Diego, the nice uh, seminary out there. Not like Westminster Philly, which is very cold and, and brittle and, and, and dark and gray. Um, and he is happily married to his wife, Margaret, and they are the proud parents of three kids like myself. I believe their names are Abby, Caleb, and Lizzie, right? I try to memorize it. So uh, without further ado, can we give Pastor Owen a warm welcome as he comes up and delivers to us God's word today? Pastor John just uh, took my opening introduction. I was going to introduce myself, but uh, you, how did you know all that about me? You memorized this already? And you are one prepared pastor. Um, a couple of fun facts for you to get to know me a little bit better. So I've been married to my wife, Margaret, for 16 years. Um, I've liked her since I was in high school. Right? I had chased her for like four years to finally get her to date me, then eventually to, to, to marry me. Uh, we have three kids together. Uh, Abby is my oldest. She's 14. She's my cheerleader. I have a son, Caleb. He's 12. He's my uh, basketball player. And then Lizzie's my 10-year-old. She's my dog lover and artist. Now, we don't have a dog, but she loves dogs. Our son is allergic to dogs, so we can't, she can't have a dog, but she has a hamster. And she loves her hamster, but she loves animals, and, and she's my little cutie. Well, the theme of this retreat is wisdom, understanding the world, through the lens of the gospel. And that is just an amazing theme. I'm so grateful to be able to study this theme with you. I'm looking forward to studying God's word with you uh, this weekend. So during this weekend, we're going to explore just really how the gospel uh, changes everything. We're going to see how some of the most basic realities of life in this world, uh, like, like ourselves, our own hearts, our work, our, our city in which we live, our suffering, we're going to look at all of those basic fundamental realities through the lens of the gospel so that we might relate to them appropriately and thus live wisely in this world. So tonight, here's, what we're going to do. here's kind of our roadmap. Tonight, we're going to look at how the gospel changes our hearts. We're going to look at ourselves, our own identity through the lens of the gospel. Then tomorrow morning, we're going to look at how the gospel changes our work, whatever you do for a living, whatever your vocation is, so that we can really uh, view our work and approach our work in a, in a gospel-centered, God-honoring, Christ-honoring way. And then tomorrow night, we're going to see how the gospel shapes how we live in our city, in the public square. I think your, your church is located in Queens, uh, New York, right? And uh, there's a calling. Your, your church isn't just in Queens, your church for Queens. What does that mean? We'll explore some of those questions. And then on Sunday morning, we're going to look at how the gospel changes, how we view our suffering. Because if there's one thing that I know for certain is that each and every one of us have suffered, or we are currently suffering, and we will suffer. 
And the gospel is the lens through which we need to view our sufferings so that we can relate to our sufferings in a way that is pleasing to God and in a way that will edify us. So the gospel, again, is the lens through which we'll see all these basic realities, our, our hearts, our work, our city, and our suffering, so that we might gain gospel wisdom to live rightly and wisely in this world, okay? So that's kind of our roadmap. That's what we're going to be doing for this weekend. And the title of tonight's sermon is The Gospel and Our Hearts. Tonight we're going to talk about how the gospel changes our hearts and how we view ourselves. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2. But before I do, let me just tell you briefly about what's happened in Romans chapters 1 through 11. Okay? In chapters 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul has gone to great lengths to write about what he calls the great mercies of God. And the mercies of God have been revealed to us in the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus, who is the Son of God, came down from heaven to earth. And he died on a cross for our sins. And he was raised on the third day for our forgiveness, for our justification, for our salvation. And in light of the mercies of God, Paul wants us to do something. What is it that Paul wants us to do in light of God's mercies? So, if you'll listen, this is God's word from Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So in light of the mercies of God, in light of the gospel, Paul tells us in verse 2 to be transformed. Because the gospel is true, because we believe the, uh, because we believe the gospel, we are to be transformed. Now the transformation that Paul has in mind is not a physical transformation where our physical appearance is altered or changed uh, by getting into better shape or by changing how we dress. He's not talking about losing weight or getting more fit or even wearing Christian t-shirts or anything like that. Nor was Paul simply talking about behavioral transformation, um, uh, like changing how we talk or how we act. It's not about staying away from secular music or or alcohol, or scotch, or, or anything like that, right? It's not about uh, listening only to Christian music, or only watching movies with Christian themes. That's not what Paul is getting at. Paul was talking about a much deeper transformation. He was talking about an internal transformation of the heart. We experience, and this is what I call gospel transformation. I'm sure that's a term that Pastor uh, John has uh, used around here before. And we experience gospel transformation when our hearts are transformed by the truth, the beauty, and the power of the gospel. Gospel transformation happens from the inside out, right? It begins on the inside as our hearts are changed, and then it works itself out, and it impacts our speech, it impacts our actions, it impacts our overall lifestyle. The gospel transforms everything about us, but it begins by changing our hearts. You see, what we love determines how we live, right? What we worship with our hearts is what determines what we're going to do with all of our resources, our time, our money, our passions, 
are our, our talents. You see, we gladly submit and surrender all of our resources to those things that we love, to those things that we worship. So in order to deal with the heart and with what the heart loves and worships, we have to talk about idolatry. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that term, idolatry. Uh, I know Pastor John has probably preached on that many times, but some of you, maybe this is a new term, and I'm not, I'm not going to assume anything. But tonight, if this concept of idolatry is new to you, I really want you to pay attention. Because I believe that this has the power to actually change your life. When you get this, when you understand what idolatry is and what the remedies for idolatry are, it has the power to change your life. Because I know, because it changed my life, it changed my heart, and it's continuing to change me uh, even to this day. So we're going to talk about idolatry. Three things about idolatry. First, the reality of idolatry. Second, the ramifications of idolatry. And third, the remedy for idolatry. So the reality, the ramifications, and the remedy uh, for idolatry. Let's get started with the reality of idolatry. So what comes to your mind when you hear the words idolatry or idols? Maybe what comes to your mind are images of stone or golden statues in some exotic temple. Uh, Think uh, uh, Indiana Jones, right? The Temple of Doom, maybe something like that. At least that's what, I, that's what used to come to my mind when I was younger. Or maybe you think of uh, men and like primitive people in straw skirts, right, with necklaces made out of tiger teeth, right? And, and they're dancing around a fire and they're bowing and they're praying for rain. Maybe you think that idolatry is an ancient and irrelevant practice, that it just simply doesn't happen in modernized countries like America, right? There is no idols, there is no idolatry in America anymore, right? Wrong. You see, the truth is that people everywhere today still worship idols, even right here in Queens, New York, and even in D.C., where I'm from. Uh, D.L. Moody said, you don't have to go to heathen lands to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. Did you hear that? An idol is whatever you love more than God. A pastor, Tim Keller, he's kind of a famous pastor, I think, in New York City. You've heard of him, right? In his book, Counterfeit Gods, he gives us a very helpful definition of what idols are. He writes this. An idol is anything more important, to, uh, more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look to you at, whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life as meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Now, it's very important that we realize that these idols are often very good things, right? They're usually not bad things like sex and drugs, right? It can be very good things. And let me give you a few examples of good things that can easily become idols, good things that become ultimate things that eventually become uh, God things and become idols and become very dangerous. For example, if you're single, romantic love with someone special is a very good and beautiful thing. But that becomes an idol when a single person needs a romantic relationship in order to feel complete. Now, I may be dating myself, but how many of you remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Like four of us, all right. 
Me and Pastor John. It was actually one of my favorite movies growing up. And one of the most memorable lines from that movie, if you remember, was when Tom Cruise says to Renee Zellweger, you remember, what does he say? You complete me, right? You complete me. Sounds so romantic, sounds so sweet, but but that's idolatry, right? Right? You see, when you look to a person and when you look to their love to complete you, you're in for a world of a world of hurt and disappointment because no person can ever complete you. And this whole idea of I'm looking for my soulmate. Stop looking. That person doesn't exist. Only God can be your soulmate. You see, when, when, you, when you end up looking to a person to complete you, here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up resenting and even hating that person for failing to complete you because no human being is big enough, large enough to ever complete another human being. And so if you're looking for romantic love with someone special to complete you, then you've made an idol out of a good thing. Romantic love is a good thing, but you can make it an idol when you make it ultimate. Children are good gifts from God. I have three of them. I love them. But children, for those of you who are parents, you know that children can easily become idols, right? Good things become too important. When parents make it all about the kids, when you revolve your life and your schedule around the kids, and, and you well-meaning parents make the well-being of their, uh, of their kids the most important thing. You know what? It can't be all about the kids. It has to be all about God. And yet sometimes we make it all about the kids, and we turn our kids into idols. Now, for some of you, maybe you're married, and you've been trying to have kids. We have a lot of people at our church that struggle with infertility. Now, the desire to have kids is a good and wonderful thing. But even that desire for kids can become an idol when, when a wife feels that she needs to become a mother in order to be truly fulfilled, in order to be truly happy, in order to, be, to feel significant. And so even the desire to have children can become an idolatrous, idolatrous desire when you feel like you need to have children in order to feel complete as a family. Now, money... Material possessions, they're good and wonderful things. But money and material possessions can easily become idols when you need them for your security, when you need them for, your, for, uh, for you to feel safe and secure and significant. Human approval and praise are good and wonderful things. But they can become idols when you need human approval for your sense of validation. And even career success and achievements are good things. But they can become idols when you need them for your sense of identity and for your sense of significance. Physical beauty, athletic ability, the list can go on and on. Any good thing that's a gift from God can become an idol when you make them an ultimate thing. When you feel like you need them for you to feel complete. When you need them to feel uh, whole and secure and significant. You see, idols or counterfeit gods that we worship. And the reason why we worship them is because we believe that they can give us what our hearts long for and need. Let me explain. In the language of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to our idols because we believe that our idols, once we get them, will make us feel holy and acceptable. Now, in our, in our heart of hearts, every single one of us, we want to be holy, and we want to be acceptable. Now, when you hear me say that, you're like, oh, Pastor Owen, you're actually holy. That, that doesn't really do it for me, right? 
Uh, the word holy has fallen on rough times nowadays. The word holy feels archaic and irrelevant. And nowadays, Christians want to be hip, not holy, right? It's all about hipster Christianity, not holy Christianity. So you may think that you may not want to be holy, but you do. Maybe a better word for this word holy might be set apart. Maybe a better word is special. And maybe a better word for acceptable is validated. See, the truth is, you and I, every single one of us, we want to feel special. And we want to feel validated. And do you know why? It's because we're created in the image of a God who is special. And who is valid in the true sense of the word. And because we're image bearers of God, and because God is special, we long to be special. Because God is valid, we long to be valid. You see, we're created in such a way where we can't help but yearn and long to be special. Let me explain. Every single one of you want to be called special, right? We all do. If you're an athlete, you want people to say about you, that's a special athlete, right? If you're a mother, you want other people to say about you, that's a special mother. Or if you're a doctor, you want to hear your patient say about you, that's a special doctor. Or if you're an artist, you want to be known as a special artist. You see, you can't deny it. We all want to be special. We all want to be validated. And in other words, we all want to be holy. And we believe that we can become holy or special. We believe that we can become uh, acceptable and validated by worshiping our idols, by offering our bodies as living sacrifices to our idols, because in the, at the end of the day, we believe the lie of idolatry. We, be, we believe the lie that says this, if I can just get X, whatever that X is, right? Whether it's financial success or career success or that beautiful wife or whatever it is that you want, if I can just get X, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be holy. Then I'll be special. Then I'll feel valid. And validated, and therefore we're willing to do whatever it takes to get X, because we're desperate to be special. We're desperate to be validated. See, the truth is, we all have idols that we worship in our hearts. We believe that there is some creative thing that we need in order to be special, to be valid. So let me ask you tonight, what do you feel that you need in order to be holy and acceptable? What do you need to be special and validated? Let me, I'll go first. I'll answer my own question. I confess that I'm prone to looking at two things for my sense of holiness, my sense of being special, okay? Two things. First is ministry success. If I feel like our church is growing numerically, if I feel like the people in our church are being changed and transformed by the gospel, if I see those things happening, it makes me happy. It makes me feel like I'm a special pastor if those two things are happening, if our church is growing and if our church is changing. And I, and I often look to that for my validation. It's a confession. The second idol I have is less noble. Uh, it's basically youth sports. My son plays basketball, and I'm a big basketball fan. And, and here's how silly it gets. When my son shines on the basketball court, it makes me feel so proud. It makes me so happy. Yes, I tend to live my sports dreams through my son, okay? It's pretty uh, embarrassing. But, but, uh, but the point I'm trying to make is it can be something as 
insignificant and silly as youth sports, that can become an idol. And something as great and serious as ministry can be an idol. And I have ministries, many, many other idols in between those two poles. But that's the most serious and the most silly idols that I have. But they are two very real idols that I'm prone to worshiping. And I have to check my heart on a daily basis. You see, seeing and acknowledging the idols of our own hearts is the first and necessary step toward gospel transformation. So idolatry is a reality in Queens, New York, in your heart, and in my heart. It's just a reality. Second, this brings me to my second point. What are the ramifications of idolatry? You see, idolatry is not just one sin among many sins. Idolatry is what we call the chief sin. It's the root sin. It's the sin that leads to all the other sins, right? In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about what's fundamentally wrong with the human heart. And what is fundamentally wrong with your heart and my heart? It's that it's idolatrous. We are prone to worshiping created things instead of the creator. That's our fundamental problem, right? And Paul goes on to make a long list of specific sins that lead to misery and evil in the world. But all those sins are but the result of idolatry, the result of people worshiping created things instead of the creator. Martin Luther said that the Ten Commandments begin with the, uh, with the commandment against idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, why does that commandment come first? Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther says it's because we never break any of the other commandments without first breaking that commandment. You see, in other words, idolatry is always the reason why we ever do anything wrong. For example, lying is a sin. You lie, I lie, we all lie, right? So raise your hand, not if you've lied in the past, in the past 10 years, but raise your hand if you lie. Go ahead. Confession time. (laughs) Whatever. Some of you uh, didn't raise your hand, and you're lying right now. You're lying right now, right? But, But why? Why? We all lie. We know we do. But why do we lie? Why do we lie? Now, the the generic answer, well, it's because we're sinful, right? That's why we lie. Well, that is true in on a, in a very superficial, uh, generic sense, but there is a more specific reason why we lie. We lie because we have made something more valuable to our hearts than God. Some people lie in order to get human approval or to protect that to protect their reputation, and that's why some of you didn't raise your hand, right? Because you want to protect something. Some people lie in order to avoid shame and to save face. Some people lie in order to get a financial advantage. Some people lie to avoid trouble. That's why kids lie, right? Because they don't want to get into trouble. That's why they lie. But you see, there's always something that you want more than God that causes you to lie in that moment when you lie. We lie because something is more important and more valuable to our hearts than God and his glory at the moment that we lie. Idolatry is the root of all sin. Idolatry is the sin beneath every sin. Idolatry is always a reason why we ever do anything wrong. Now, how many of you have seen the series Breaking Bad? Oh, come on. Is it just people in Virginia that watch TV all the time? (laughs) Okay, you guys are too busy working. I don't know what you're doing. Okay, but Breaking Bad was a very popular TV show uh, from 2008 to uh, 2013. It received widespread critical acclaim and is considered 
to be one of the greatest TV series of all time. The show won 10 Emmy Awards. Okay, for those of you who watched the show, you know how amazing that was. Now, the main character of this series, of this show, was a man named Walter White. Now, spoiler alert, okay? I'm going to just, for those of you who haven't seen this, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen here, all right? And the show is, I think, is a case study on idolatry on Walter White's idolatry and the terrible ramifications of idolatry, right? So at the beginning of the show, Walter White was a high school chemistry teacher, a law-abiding citizen, a family man, and just a very nice guy. He's like Ned Flanders, right? Just like a really, really nice guy. He was Mr. Chips. But when Walter learned that he had terminal lung cancer, that he only had a few months left to live, he thought about his family. And he thought about providing financially for his family because his wife was pregnant and they had a special needs teenage son. And Walter wanted to provide financially for his family. That is a good thing. That is a good desire, right, to provide financially for your family. But getting financial security for his family became too important. And it became his idol. And he was willing to do whatever it took, whatever was necessary, to provide financial security for his family. And when Walter learned that he could cook the best meth in town, that he could make a lot of money by selling that meth, he began to sell meth. Now, Walter knew that what he was doing was wrong. But he felt like he had good reasons for doing what he did. It was to provide for his family. And this began Walter's descent into a life of crime and darkness. Walter began to break the law, and he began to do things that he never thought himself capable of. It began with lying to people, but eventually it ended with him killing and murdering people. And by the end of the series, Walter White had become a ruthless monster. Why? Because Walter had made an idol of something good, financial security for his family, but he was willing to sin and do whatever it took to get there. And uh, Vince uh, Gilligan, who was the creator of the show, in an interview said this, that the whole point of the show was to show the transformation of Walter White from protagonist to antagonist, from going from Mr. Chips to Scarface. And that's what happens when you make an idol out of a good thing, because you're willing to sin in order to get that good thing, right? And um, let me make it uh, a little more personal here. How many of you here are parents who have kids who do youth sports. So I, I need to find out right now if this illustration is ever going to resonate with anyone. Okay, three of you. Okay, this illustration is for the three of you, right? Have you guys seen that uh, a show on Netflix called Trophy Kids? Have you seen that? Okay, you need to see this show. It's crazy. Because you have these dads who have gifted athletes, and they're so desperate for their son, whom they love, to excel in sports, that they go crazy on their kids. And what's so sad is that they end up wounding and hurting and devastating the very kids that they love because they loved athletic success more than their own kids. Now, that's very impersonal. And I can just say that and kind of be judgmental towards those dads. But let me get a little more personal here. In third grade, my son was invited to try out for the, the leading AU basketball team in Northern Virginia. It's a big honor to just to be, to, to be able to try out. And he's in third grade, okay? Third grade. He's like eight. All right? 
And he goes to this tryout, and I know what he's capable of. And I, as his dad, I, I want so much for him to have a good showing, to impress the coaches, to dominate the court, and to school all the other little third graders, right? <laughs> I want that. But because of, you know, the number of kids that were at the trout, he, I just sensed he was being timid, and he wasn't doing what I thought he was capable of. And it had me in a rage as I was watching. And then when we got into the car, to go home, I exploded. Do you even want to play basketball? You play like a little pansy. And I went crazy. And my son in the back seat is just crying. And just saying, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry, Dad. Just crying. And then it hit me in that moment. What a monster I was being toward my son. Why? Because I made sports success too important. And I wanted it so badly for him that I sinned against him, yelled at him, shamed him, devastated him because I wanted something good too badly. You see, good people do bad things when they want a good thing too badly. That's the ramification of idolatry. You see... Idolatry drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others, to harm even ourselves in order to get it. You know something is an idol in your heart when you're willing to do anything to get it, when you're willing to sin in order to get it, when getting your idol is more important than honoring God. Idolatry is the reason why you ever do anything wrong, because good people do bad things when they want a good thing too badly. So that's the ramification. So we've talked about the reality of idolatry, and we've talked about the ramifications of idolatry. But is there a remedy? Is there a remedy for idolatry? And the good news is, yes, there is a remedy. The remedy for idolatry in our hearts is not to repress the impulse to worship, but to replace the object of our worship. Let me say that again, because that's really important. The remedy for idolatry is not to repress the impulse to worship, but to replace the object of our worship. You see, we're created to worship. We're born worshipers. We're wired to worship. We're wired to look at something and say, you're good, you're beautiful, I want it. We're wired to worship. But by the grace of God, we can change what we worship because we're always going to worship something. Verse 1 talks about spiritual worship, which can also be translated as rational worship. You see, rational worship is offering your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, the creator. That implies that there's irrational worship, right? And that's the kind of worship that idolatry is. Irrational worship is offering your bodies as a living sacrifice to created things. Rational worship is offering your body as a living sacrifice to the creator, God. Now, irrational worship leads to godless living, while rational worship leads to godly living. And um, rational worship leads to, again, a God-centered, uh, glorifying life, the kind of life that's described really in the rest of uh, Romans chapter 12 and 13. So how do we engage in the rational worship of God that leads to godly living and avoid irrational worship that leads to God godless living? In other words, how can we be transformed from being irrational worshipers of creatures to being rational worshipers of the Creator? 
Now, verse 2 says that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. You see, our hearts are transformed as our minds are renewed by the gospel, as our minds are renewed by the mercies of God. You see, in the gospel, we see the mercies of God. The gospel shows us two things. The gospel shows us that Jesus is our Savior and our satisfaction. Okay, I can't stress how important that is. First of all, Jesus is our Savior. That means he's the one who went to the cross, bore our shame, took our guilt, took all of our sins, nailed it to the cross, died for them, was raised on the third day for our salvation. He is our Savior. But Jesus is not just our Savior. He's also our satisfaction. You see, Jesus, in Jesus, we, we find the fullness of what we had hoped to find in our idols. Only Jesus can give us what we hoped our idols would give us. This is what your heart longs for. Whether you know this or not, this is what your heart longs for. For you to be loved, valued, and celebrated by God. You may not even know that's what you've wanted. But that's what you want. And how do I know this? I see it in youth sports. When you go to youth sports, whenever a kid makes a basket, do you know what he does? What does he do? He doesn't just do this, but he looks. Where does he look? He looks at his parents, and then he looks at his coach. Every time he does something good, he's looking to his coach, and he's looking to his dad. He's looking for that nod of approval. Do you know when a child does that? It is an impulse, because he's looking for the approval of his heavenly father. You see, every time you do something good, you're looking for someone. Did you see me do that? But do you realize that's just an echo? Are you desiring for God to see you do that? You didn't know that. But every time you look for that nod of approval, and you never got it from your mom, you never got it from your dad, you never got it from your husband, but you're looking for it, really, at the bottom of your heart, you're looking for it from God. And in the gospel, God says to you, you are special to me. You are validated by me. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. You see, the gospel tells you what you've been longing your whole life to hear. In the gospel, God himself says to your heart, you are my beloved child in whom I delight. You are special to me. You are validated in my eyes. You see, the gospel frees you. To stop looking to your idols to make you feel special and validated. Because the gospel tells you that you already are special to God. You're already special to the only one whose opinion truly, really matters. All because of what Jesus has done for you. The gospel says that you are holy. That you are acceptable. You are special. You are valid. Because of what Jesus has done for you. And to the degree that you're able to see by faith. Uh, to see that by faith, to the, degree, to the degree that you see that Jesus loved you to the, to the point of offering up his life for you, you will worship him and you will love him with all of your heart. And when your heart is able to see the beauty of Jesus' love for you, then your heart will respond with love for Jesus and you will worship Jesus with your heart. And when your heart is convinced that Jesus is better and more beautiful, and more satisfying than any idol, then and only then will true gospel transformation begin to happen in your heart. That's when gospel transformation happens, 
when Jesus becomes more beautiful to you, to your imagination, and more attractive to your heart than your very best idols. Gospel transformation happens when you fixate your heart on Jesus and as you look to Jesus for holiness and acceptance. As Tim Keller said, um, religious people see God as useful. Christians see God as beautiful. Is God beautiful to you? And when God becomes beautiful, your heart will melt. Your heart will change. And that's when you begin to change from the inside out. The gospel says that you're special to God, not because you did something great, but because Jesus did something great for you in your place. So how do you change? How do you experience gospel transformation? You experience gospel transformation really by doing two things, okay? you got to write this down. These are two very important things. First, you experience gospel transformation by repenting not just of your sins, but also of your idols. There's a big difference. Let me tell you. Two days ago, as I'm getting ready to come and preach at this retreat, I have a terrible blow-up with my son, okay? In anger, I yell at my son. Why? Because he's so slow at getting ready. And I hate being late in the mornings, right? Put on your socks. Put on your jacket. Fill your water. Why do I have to tell you to do everything that you know you're supposed to do? Now, superficial repentance is, son, I'm sorry for yelling at you. That's a sin, right? But that's superficial repentance. The deeper repentance has to be my desire for control, my desire for convenience. Why did I get so angry at my son? Because he was dragging his feet. Because he wasn't working according to my timetable. Because he was impeding on my comfort and my convenience. And so you see, when you repent, you can't just repent of the sin, but you have to repent of the sin underneath the sin, the sin that caused you to sin in the first place. The fact in that moment, I love my comfort more than God. I love my comfort more than my son. That's why I exploded in anger. And so when you repent, it can't just be the surface sins, but you've got to go deeper. Look into your What was it that you wanted so badly that caused you to, to explode or lash out in anger, to, to lie, or to do whatever it is that you did? What was it? And you need to begin to repent of your idols, right? Not just, not just your sins, but your idols. But secondly, you can't just repent. You have to believe the gospel at a deep level which means that you look to Jesus to satisfy the longings of your heart. And you look to Jesus to make you feel special and validated. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville uh, said that the incomplete joys of the world will never satisfy the human heart. Only God himself can satisfy the human heart. Let me tell you a story. After nine years of pastoral ministry at my old church in California, it's a church I had planted and pastored for nine years, I resigned. And it was a very painful separation. I'll tell you a little bit more of that story on Sunday. But after I resigned, um, a lot of my well-meaning friends came up to me and said, you know, Pastor Owen, now, you know, you're, you're free. You're, you don't have those elders that are, that are trying to hold you back. Now you can go and do some great and amazing things for God. I can see you, Pastor Owen, just doing, just, just kind of soaring and just taking off in ministry. Now, I know that where that came from was they were meaning to encourage me, right? They wanted to affirm me, so I appreciated that. But, you know, deep inside, those words were more burdensome than encouraging. Why? Because I began to ask myself, 
But what if I don't? What if I never do anything great or amazing? What if I'm just an ordinary pastor that no one remembers, soon be forgotten after I die? What if I never become that special pastor? What then? You see, it's in those moments that I must preach the gospel to myself and believe the gospel that I'm preaching to myself. Because when I'm not believing the gospel, um, do you know what I am? I'm a very insecure pastor. I'm willing to overwork, sacrifice my body, sacrifice my family, so I can prove myself that I'm a capable pastor. I need to prove something. And it makes me a monster. And then ultimately, it makes the ministry all about me. About me trying to prove to myself and trying to prove to the world. Trying to prove something to someone that I can do this. But when I preach the gospel to myself and when I'm believing the gospel, it transforms me. It transforms me into being a pastor that's okay with being just me. It frees me from the burden and the need to be special. It frees me from the need to be celebrated by people because I know that I'm celebrated by my Father in heaven and his celebration is all that I need. You see, I don't need my church or anyone in my church to think that I'm special because I know that God knows that I'm special in Christ and that's enough. And the gospel transforms how I do ministry. Because the gospel validates me, I don't need ministry to validate me anymore. I don't need people to validate me anymore. And now, you know what happens when, you, when you're there? I'm free to stop worshiping ministry as my idol. And now I'm free to start using ministry as my vocation to love God and to love people. I tell this to my church all the time. I say, I want you to like me, right? Everyone wants to be liked. But I don't need you to like me anymore. I like being the pastor of this church, but I don't need to be the pastor of this church. You see, the gospel frees me from needing the approval of my church for my identity, my sense of significance, and my validation. I don't need my church to make me feel special. I just need Jesus to make me feel special. And when I'm there, I'm a good pastor. But when I'm not, I'm a very selfish pastor because basically I'm using my church to make me feel good about myself. And that's fleshly, destructive, fruitless ministry. And friends, that's how the gospel transforms me on a weekly, daily, monthly basis as a pastor. And I believe that as you preach the gospel to yourself, as you preach the gospel to your own hearts, and as you repent of your idols, that you will experience the transforming power of this amazing gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you, by your grace and by the prompting of your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see ourselves as you see us in Christ. In Christ, we are holy and acceptable to you. In Christ, we are special and valid. And help us, Lord, to see that we are indeed your beloved sons and daughters. And would you fill our hearts with joy and gratitude? Would you free us from insecurity? And would you free us to know the joy of knowing that you, O oh God, you sing over us. 
when you look at us, there is love in your eyes, not disappointment. There is affection in your eyes, not anger. And as we see your loving eyes, Heavenly Abba, Father, would our hearts be changed and would we know the joy and the freedom and the fullness of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all rise and um, just have a song of response. So we bow our hearts. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. Turn our eyes from evil things. Oh Lord, we cast down our idols. We bow our hearts. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Oh Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our down our idols give us clean hands give us pure hearts let us not lift our souls to another give us clean hands give us pure hearts let us not lift our souls to another. Oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks your face. Oh God of Jacob, oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks your face. Oh, God of Jacob. So give us, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks your face. Oh, God of Jacob, oh, God, let us be generation that seeks, seeks your face, oh God of Jacob. Sing last time, give us clean, give us clean hands.